Welcome to the Aux Podcast, audio and audio, with your host, me, Will, Will Flom. This podcast is very sophisticated, very erudite, very erudite, very important. Today on Aux, audio on audio, we're going to consider two political writers. Edmund Burke, writing in the shadow of the French Revolution, and Karl Popper, who had to flee Vienna as Hitler invaded 1940s in the shadow of fascism. The reason I want to consider Popper and Burke together is not to judge them, not to find affinities with them, not to criticize them or praise them. The reason is that political philosophies that sound moderate and reasonable may in fact not be reasonable given how political power actually operates in the world. Both Burke, living in under the shadow of Robespierre, and Popper, living under the shadow of Hitler, miss something fundamental about the constitutional democracies of England, America, and in Popper's case, New Zealand, where he lived. I see both of these writers as moderates or liberals, in a sense, who have been bamboozled and tricked by the illusion of an open society and a constitutional structure. And they didn't see where it could go without the explicit abrogation of the Constitution leading to where we are now, which is a totalitarian system in the United States. And moderates like Hopper and Burke fail to see the danger of the status quo. So really, one main theme of this episode is the danger of moderation and apparently reasonable acceptance of the status quo. And both of these well-thought-out books, both Edmund Burke's prescient work on the French Revolution and Karl Popper's Open Society, when I hear their theories, I just see a moderate and the collapse that happens when you trust moderates. And after taking a look at their reasonable and moderate perspective, I will make a case that this kind of thinking is positively dangerous. And there's a lot of time and space in between the two of them. Let's see who they were. Burke opposed the French Revolution from the first day and had no illusions about where it would lead. It highlights something which is really important about his work, namely his criticism of the appeal to ideas about natural rights. Above all, Burke stressed the significance of the British Constitution and of other constitutions and bodies of traditional law. If conventional rights are undermined, the result isn't the rule of reason, but the rule of violence. And so Edmund Burke was an Irishman living in England who wrote a book about the French Revolution prior to the terror that basically predicted the terror in a certain sense. And he is sort of known as the godfather of conservatism. If you think about it, conservatism doesn't need a uh, philosophy or a political philosophy, as if you believe the current institutions should remain as they are, you don't really need to make a comprehensive argument in book form to preserve what's already there. It's only this period around the 
French Revolution, the American Revolution, that you have to argue back against the reformers and the philosophers. And so Burke argues that you don't have natural rights, as we'll hear. What you have are historic rights that are embedded in a culture and a time. And as an Englishman, he looked at his own constitution and the natural rights of Englishmen, and he saw that as the basis for your rights. And actually, Hannah Arendt talks about this in her work on fascism, that the refugee is a refutation of the idea that there are rights of man or the rights of humans as natural right. It's obvious that we don't believe that. If we did, there would be no such thing as a refugee, a stateless person who, once they're stateless, has no rights. So you can see in that context that Burke is onto something. The American Revolution could be and has been seen as a conservative revolution, a revolution to preserve existing rights. French Revolution was undoubtedly the opposite. So that's why Edmund Burke supported the American Revolution and opposed the French Revolution. What he thought was a really important role of religious institutions in that society, namely as corporate bodies which were separate from the state. These, on Burke's view, these historical products are the basis for people's real rights in different specific countries, but they'll obviously be specific to particular countries because they will fit in with the particular constitutions that you've got there, the particular habits that people have got in different countries. And to be fair to Edmund Burke, he's not just, I got mine, tough luck for you kind of guy, apparently. For being on the side of the underdog. He was concerned about the Irish and the way in which they'd been treated badly by the British. He was concerned about India and the way in which people in India were being exploited. And so he was very much on the side of those people who were suffering from colonial exploitation. But let's see how this sort of godfather of conservatism, who he thinks is not the underdog. Jews represent everything tawdry and commercial about markets. I quote, Jew brokers contending with each other who could best remedy with fraudulent circulation and appreciated paper the wretchedness and ruin brought on their country by their degenerate councils. Unquote. Now Burke's most avid and best pupils were the reactionary Prussian landlords, the Junkers, the great Austrian and Polish magnates, the enemies of progress in every country. After all, the ruling classes in Europe were landlords and feudal lords at that. They hated free markets, free citizens, free peasants, free movement of capital labor, free thought, Jews, stock markets, banks, cities, Free press, free theater. So the followers of Burke on the continent missed that part about the rights of Englishmen and your constitutional rights, but they liked that part about the, the church and the conservatism, and they studied hard at the feet of the master when it came to the Jews. Okay, but there is a point where I think Edmund Burke... Uh, was very prescient, as I said before, in that his criticism of confiscating lands from the church and eliminating an institution that was powerful in the state, leaving the state with more unfettered authority, that was a legitimate concern. And there is an argument out there that the French Revolution represented a, uh, a backward step. It was regressive in terms of human freedom. 
And you'll say, well, why? I mean, to have people who just happen to be born as aristocrats, who have certain rights and privileges, including the right to adjudicate trials when they clearly have a vested interest in the outcome, that this is absurd. Am I really going to sit up here and say that a system in which the rate at which you pay taxes and the rights that you have depend on your last name and who gets to be the leader of the country depends on from who and when you were born is a more free system than what followed in what we call a bourgeois democracy or liberal democracy. And there are people out there that say, yeah, that's what it was. Prior to the French Revolution, there were only 5,000 police in the whole country. There was no such thing as a draft. And after the revolution, that some officials of the state can come and grab your sons out of their house and send them off to Russia, as ultimately happened, to die for who knows what, that was not an advance in freedom. And yes, to have the aristocratic lord who is the primary landholder also serve as the judge adjudicating cases in the same district would seem to be a conflict of interest, but it's even worse to have an anonymous official appointed by the center showing up who doesn't know anybody. All those thousands or tens of thousands of peasants who sided with the royalists didn't do it because they didn't know on which side of their bread was buttered. You know, an aristocrat is an annoying thing, but if they get too out of hand, you know, the wheel on their carriage could just slip off. If they send in some sort of overseer in the situation who's a little too predatory sexually, there could be a fire in the barn. Aristocrats have been known to fall off their horse and break their neck. These local aristocrats know your family, maybe, or they have agents who know your family. And in a time of difficulty, they may help you out. An aristocrat could be an asshole, or he could be okay. But an official from Paris? They're just going to put you in the army and send you to Russia. Okay, let's leave the French Revolution and Edmund Burke and jump a couple centuries forward to Karl Popper. So on September 1st, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland notoriously marking the beginning of the Second World War and marking the beginning of an age where fascism and totalitarianism posed a new level of threat towards Western liberal democracy. There were a lot of thinkers at the time that were worried about this whole state of affairs, and they decided that the best thing to do would be to take up arms against it. Not to take up arms in the actual war itself, but instead in the war of ideas that was riding shotgun in the Panzer IV tanks trying to take over the world at the time. Now, the main objective of these thinkers was that they wanted to make people aware of just how easy it can be to fall under the spell of the stories told by totalitarian and fascist regimes. Karl Popper from Vienna, refugee from Hitler in 1940, who ends up in New Zealand and then England and then America, is going to be important in terms of the philosophy of science and a series of lectures on the history of science and on the philosophy of science that were great, I will recommend at some point. But right now we're going to just work on the, look at the political work of Karl Popper. Now, in the Open Society, the book, the book he wrote in New Zealand is called The Open Society and Its Enemies. And I think we probably understand 
a bit more about what the open society is if we look first at who the enemies were. And in this interpretation of Popper, the primary enemies were not fascists in Europe, but um, there seems to be some disagreement about that. More sophisticated enemies of the open society were particularly Plato and Marx. But what all these people were supposed to have in common was that they thought that intellectuals particularly could have some universal knowledge of how society should run, which they would then impose this blueprint on everybody else. In closed societies, rulers are impervious to criticism. They don't welcome it, they don't listen to it, they know. According to Poppet, they don't know because they're claiming to know things that can't be known, like the future course of history. You will engage in piecemeal policies whose effects you closely monitor. And then you revise the policy in the light of what, what you've then learnt and then revise them again and again. It's an endless, an endless process. And these seem like fairly innocuous or even obvious or uncontroversial sort of points of view. And yet I'm going to make an argument that there is something inherently dangerous in the way Popper is framing politics. But let me just uh, round out what else we can uh, quickly grab around the audio files on Mr. Popper. Rulers can be got rid of peacefully and regularly and people will act on the criticisms that come in. But Popper knew better than most people that there could be an elective dictatorship. So, so democracy doesn't guarantee openness. You could have a majority party that just sits there. The Open Society and its enemies is an exposition of Popper's ideas, but much of the criticism is undertaken by way of criticism of Plato on the one side and Marx on the other. Our best-known knowledge, science, Popper wanted to say, isn't justified true belief. And I think that this highlights a kind of difficulty about Popper's approach, which is that he paints a nice picture about what politics should be doing, but there's a question about how could it do this. And at this point, I want to give some sort of superficial synopsis of how I see Popper, and then I'm going to tie it into why I'm putting Popper and Burke in the same podcast. And then I'm going to try and explain why there's something dangerous in that point of view. And whether or not Popper explicitly said this or even thought it, the link between Plato, Marx, the Nazis, and Stalin would be the idea of a philosophy leading to a policy leading to a disaster. And in all the systems, you have some sort of intelligentsia or intellectual idea that guides the whole system. And under Marx, you have dialectical materialism that's driving history, creating a new synthesis and inevitably leading to some sort of classless society. And you have some kind of dynamic like that in the Republic of Plato with the philosopher King. And the Nazi philosophy is so incoherent, it's hard to figure out if that even fits the model. But they did supposedly or claim to have some sort of idea. And like Burke... Popper admired the constitutional liberal democracies, United States and England, and particularly New Zealand. And Popper wants to have some sort of dialogue, testing ideas and policies and perfecting them. And with Popper's questioning of um, majority rule, um, you would kind of harkens back to the rights of an Englishman of Burke, where there's individual liberty regardless of majority rule. So that seems to be another common thread between the two writers. And at least in the context of American history, both of them have a moderate 
gloss to them, whether conservative or left or right. The general thrust is moderate and procedural. But I also think that would more or less pertain globally, not just in the United States. And now I want to say why this is dangerous. And here I want to refer to something I read, so there's no audio file in the New York Review of Books, and I will append a link to the notes on the podcast pertaining to the 1919 election in the Po Valley in Italy. And the reason why this part of history is not some sort of minor footnote is that the basic dynamics that we see there in 1919 in Italy, we see again in 1880s in the Granger Movement in Illinois, or in 1972 in Chile, or 1954 in Guatemala, and a number of other cases. And by seeing how power actually works, it looks completely different, at least it can so coming out of World War I, socialists did great in these elections, and they tried to, within the existing Constitution, do some very substantial reforms, which were pretty interesting, like instead of, this was a rural area, instead of landowners hiring workers individually, they would have to hire them through a state-sponsored collective where the wages and terms were already set by the state. Hiring and firing involved a middleman, which was a state-sponsored union of agricultural workers. And with the tools that they had, the socialists were attempting to create major reforms within the existing legal structure that would help poor workers. And according to this article, this is where fascism started, as the uh, police and the landowners violated the principles of elective government and cracked down on the elected government the liberals and the moderates uh, who worked in newspapers and lawyers and doctors all basically um, collaborated with the overthrow of the democratic regime. And if they didn't actively collaborate, they certainly didn't stand up. And they never do. They didn't in the 1880s when the Granger movement uh, won a Supreme Court victory. And after Munn versus Illinois of 1887, business interests made sure that we never had a Supreme Court do that again. And we never have. And nowhere in the U.S. Constitution does it say that a state cannot impose price controls um, for agricultural pro- produce or for anything else. There's nothing in there about it. But that, And that's why the decision was rendered in 1887. But since then, it's become clear that that's not going to be allowed. And that the purpose of the Supreme Court, as established in the elitist republic that we have is to prevent that from happening. And if you can stop it like that with a Supreme Court ruling, some manipulated elections, it's much cleaner than what what happened in Italy, which was uglier and more obvious. But it's basically the same kind of dynamic. If you can judicially stop a movement, then that's fine. If you can't, then you go for the physical repression as you see in 1919 Italy. And in um, Arbenes in Guatemala in 1954 or um, Allende in Chile in 1972, you can have collaboration with foreigners. But that piece was not required in either Italy or Illinois. And the difference between Italy and Illinois in these examples is more or less the same difference that you see now between China under Xi Jinping and the United States of America. The relatively open repressive regime in China isn't necessary in the United States, so it hasn't been activated 
when it is activated, as we see with um, Julian Assange or Edward Snowden or the primaries of 2016 and 2020 in the Democratic Party, but in general, the seamless web of effective propaganda and targeted repression is sufficient that it's basically invisible to most people. And because the system is so more effective in the United States, in China, the Communist Party has to make sure living standards continue to approve, improve because everybody knows who's in charge and everybody knows the return address. In the more diffuse U.S. system, there is no return address. There is no need to improve living standards. So to idealize this system, this constitutional system as an open society or as the touchstone of liberty, as Burke and Popper did, is ignoring the way power actually works. And if you want to see how the elitist republic works and what's important, you can watch a city fall off the map or a toenail broken on a billionaire and watch the reaction of the government. And there's absolutely nobody in the United States or practically nobody who cares about Syria, and yet we just bombed a dam there. And you can have a thousand followers on Twitter and publish your leftist let's, for example, say diatribe against, say, Bernie Sanders for being co-opted in a sellout, which you may or may not have a legitimate point there, but you're by, by default also a sellout because you can continue to do that until you actually crack the seamless web, which almost never happens. So your mere existence is obfuscating the underlying reality of totalitarian control. And that's so much more effective than banning Winnie the Pooh imagery as suggesting that Xi Jinping looks like Winnie the Pooh, which he does. And if a leftist such as Bernie Sanders were somehow to come to power, and Bernie was uniquely situated to win a general election, there was plenty of other ways to stop him. With the Supreme Court, um, in Congress, and if none of that works, there's NSA, CIA, and plenty of other ways. So did he pose a real threat? More than anyone else, despite his own acquiescence. His personal acquiescence had nothing to do with it. He just had the wrong message. And you want to nip it in the bud and not get to a Po Valley situation. Being able to move from one place to another without permission does not make this an open society. Being able to go on Twitter and criticize the president does not make this an open society. And the liberty envisioned by Burke cannot be anything substantial if it is impossible to lead to a change in the system. If it's impossible to change the system, there is no liberty. So, Popper... And Burke, like all moderates, has been have been suckered. There's almost no way, or there is no way, within the structure of the elitist republic to turn it into something that is not an elitist republic that has been operating as designed for, in this case, 250 years, and in England, longer than that. And at least in China, there's an imperative to improve the standard of living of the population, which doesn't exist in the United States, with declining life expectancy to cite only one of the many downward trends. And moderates can be counted on to stymie any constitutional and legal serious reform until the right inevitably rises, at which point the moderates can be reliably counted on to lambast the left. And the exception to that is somebody like Che Guevara or Lenin, and 
the liberals will pretend that there was something legal or constitutional about the provisional government of Kerensky when there wasn't. And as rare as those individuals are, the right-wing populist is far more common and far more likely. And by praising this clunky old constitutional elitist republic, bourgeois republic, or whatever you want to call it, parliamentary democracy, as the ultimate goal, as Popper and, and Burke do, they are contributing to the rise of fascism because they are preventing actual reform. And Edmund Burke is decrying the revolutionaries without noting that a significant segment of the population sided with foreign enemies to overthrow the first democratically elected government in Europe of the Jacobins. The first half of the terror, anyway, came during a time of a civil war. And Edmund Burke's only going to allow a revolution of slave owners like in the United States. And the range of acceptable options is too limited. And because Burke and Popper would have us respect every Supreme Court decision, and I, I did cite a Supreme Court decision that I thought was good, and there's been three or four good ones over the course of U.S. history, but if these moderates would have us restrict our vision to that which is allowed by the elitist republic, then they make fascism inevitable. And of course, it's going to look different this time, and it's already creeping in. And it's, I don't think Edmund Burke or Karl Popper would notice that the Constitution actually doesn't guide U.S. US government at all. That if the government can read all your emails, then the, you know, the Fourth Amendment is nothing. Julian Assange is in prison. There goes the First Amendment. Barrett Brown went to prison for reporting on the nexus of military contractors and corporations. And the FBI has operated as a as a political police for a hundred years. This is your liberty and this is your open society. And with that, I'm going to end this second episode of Ox, audio on audio. Thank you for listening. Thus concludes the Ox podcast, audio on audio. Thank you for listening. <laughs>